Hello and welcome to the Miko Bits show and I'm your host Miko Bits. Today we have Elena, the founder of Ironfish, and she'll be here to talk a little bit about uh, privacy based on the project that she's developed. So, uh, Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. So I guess the first and kind of easy question is really uh, to talk a little bit about Ironfish and tell me what problem it is that you solve. Yeah, so Ironfish is a new layer one proof of work chain, um, and all transactions in Ironfish are completely private, meaning that they're completely encrypted, um, and the validation happens through something called zero knowledge proofs, which I'm more than happy to talk about. Um, we also have custom asset functionality in Ironfish, and so the goal for Ironfish is really to be this privacy platform for all of for all crypto assets, um, and we uh, aim to achieve that with bridges. So you can kind of think of Ironfish as this chain agnostic privacy platform that can support assets on any other bridge or any on any other chain using bridges. That's exciting. I guess you know one of the things I'd love to kind of understand a bit is uh, a little bit more about bridging because obviously bridging is you know a very complex topic in its own right uh, beyond just privacy. So I'd love to understand your mindset around bridging. Yeah, so uh, a bridge allows for one asset that originated, originated one chain to be represented on a different chain. Um, so if you ever heard of like wrapped Bitcoin or Ethereum, for instance, that is a result of a bridge that carried or transferred over the Bitcoin uh, from Bitcoin over to uh, Ethereum. So whenever that happens, um, this asset that originated on a different chain gets the functionalities of, let's say, uh, you know, the destination chain. So for instance, uh, for Bitcoin, um, you know, there's not really a DeFi on the Bitcoin ecosystem, but there is certainly a lot of uh, DeFi happening on Ethereum. So how do you um, how do you earn yield on Bitcoin, for instance? Well, you you can do so um, as a RAF representation of Bitcoin on Ethereum. Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Uh, I think one of the things that's historically been a bit of a challenge is that when you see things like the wormhole bridge, right, that bridges sometimes have sort of value that can be sort of spoofed or can be kind of hacked or so there's several different mechanisms through which kind of the pooling of value kind of creates a, a juicy target, right? So I think uh, I'm wondering what your thought process is around the vulnerability of bridging. Yeah, so I don't think there's ever been a spoofing of bridges, um, but we certainly have had a ton of hacks of bridges. Um, obviously, the wormholes one, the Ronin bridge is probably the biggest hack. Uh, the Nomad hack is another one. Um, and um, there are different types of bridge designs, and all of them have different types of vulnerabilities, but that isn't to say that bridges are dead just because we had a few hacks. Um, it was very early in its ecosystem, um, and there were things that the community have certainly learned of how to build better bridges. Um, it can certainly talk about the Rodin Bridge, which is one that I'm a little bit more familiar with in terms of how that happened, or the Nomad Bridge. Um, but a lot of times the hacks happen through um, not necessarily there being a bug in the code, although we've seen that as well, but more like abuse of the system. So for Rodin Bridge in particular, there were nine validators. So the majority of the validators needed to vote for, uh, for like let's say, to, um, to unlock the assets that were escrowed. Um, and, uh, and the attacker basically found a way to get the majority of the validator. So that wasn't necessarily like a bug in the code, but more of 
um, understanding how the security um, uh, constraints of the, of the bridge worked um, and finding vulnerability in that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, again, that isn't to say that, that bridges are dead. In fact, every time we talk about an L2, there's actually a bridge between the L1 and the L2. And so bridges are way more pervasive than people realize. Um, and there have been certainly tons of instances of bridges not breaking <laughs> or bridges even recovering. I mean, Wormhole is still one of the biggest uh, uh, bridge systems between chains. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think for sure there isn't a useful system that can't be compromised as a function of OPSEC of like basically things like key mismanagement or, you know, these types of uh, considerations, right? So in a sense, like you know, you can create a very beautiful mathematical proof that an adversary cannot penetrate your system cryptographically. However, the proof falls apart if the adversary and the user are the same, the same thing, right? So I think if you define a useful system as a system that has a user, then if the user equals the adversary, then the adversary has access to every, to at least the user part of the system, right? So, so clearly, uh, you know, those, those OPSEC things can't, they, there's not a f fundamental solution to that, you know, other than making systems that aren't useful. But I, th I think that's not a great answer either. So, you know, so I, I do think that, you know, what you're describing makes sense. Uh, I'm curious about the privacy element, right? So, you know, uh, maybe you can describe a little bit about kind of the zero knowledge proof side of things. And, you know, maybe you can help the audience kind of unpack that better. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if I were to send you one Bitcoin, for instance, the world sees that my wallet sent your wallet exactly one Bitcoin. Um, and the reason for that is because validation uh, happens through transparency. So uh, if someone were to validate that transaction, they would have to see that my wallet previously has had transactions associated with it that have made my account be at least a Bitcoin in order for me to send you a Bitcoin. So what we were doing at Ironfish is basically saying, okay, this transaction is encrypted, so you cannot see its contents. Um, but I can provide to you the zero knowledge proof uh, that the transaction is correct, even though you cannot see its contents. So at its core, zero knowledge proofs are all about honest computation. So it's the ability to prove that the outcome of a certain program is correct without necessarily seeing all the inputs that, have, that are associated with it. Um, and that's exactly how our interest uses zero knowledge proofs um, that allows all transactions to be fully encrypted um, and the validation key uh, happens through the use of knowledge proofs. Uh, I'm curious a little bit about how this project got started. Like, tell me a little bit about inception, like founding story. Like, how how did you, uh, you know, come onto this or come up with this? Yeah, <clears throat> so I went to a hackathon. Uh, it's a, it was actually a very Ethereum story. Um, you know, in 2017, um, I'm from San Francisco and. Uh, it's a, San Francisco is definitely a very special place. Like whenever there's a new technology wave happening, then kind of you, like the city kind of buzzes with, with this new technology. Um, so right now like it's definitely AI and you, uh, San Francisco does feel like an AI hub. But back in 2017, it definitely felt like everyone was talking about crypto. Um, and so I, you know, by osmosis kind of have, uh, started hearing about Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and how cool the, the, the technology was, um, and uh, kind of my my first entry point to that was actually attending a dinner at uh, the Protocol Labs house. Um, and Protocol Labs is the company behind a project called Filecoin, um, uh, and they were m mostly known for IPFS back then. Um, and um, 
there were just tons of really smart people and all of them were talking about Ethereum. So I remember on the drive back from that dinner, I'm Googling like, you know, what is Ethereum? What is it used for? What are smart contracts? What is uh, Solidity? Like, how does that all work? Um, and uh, a few months later, the very first Ethereum focused uh, hackathon was announced called ETH Waterloo. This is part of the ETH global uh, network of hackathons, yep. which is quite an amazing organization. So if your listeners don't know about it already, um, highly encourage you to look into those. Um, and I, I decided to go. So this was the very first one. So if you guys remember like CryptoKitties, they actually made their debut at that hackathon and really like unlocked, like unleashed uh, CryptoKitties at that event. Um, and I was just floored by how open and welcoming the community was. Um, you know, I'm hacking on my project. It's like 3.30 a.m. Can't get my MetaMask integration to work. And Dan Finlay, who you know, practically wrote MetaMask, was helping me debug MetaMask at like 3.30 a.m. It felt like a very special moment of like, you know, I'm not sure if this is what the start of the internet felt like. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm a little too young for that, but it definitely felt like something super special. Um, and I realized that even if blockchain were to go away, um, you know, I, this is a really special community and I, and I definitely want to be a part of it. Um, and so in, in 2018, I was a software engineer at Airbnb um, and I decided to quit my job. Um, and in 2019 is when uh, Beanstalk happened, which later was renamed to Ironfish. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the way I thought about um, starting Ironfish is I kind of worked backwards. Uh, like, what is crypto really trying to achieve here? And crypto, in my opinion, is trying to achieve this unbiased, uncensored, you know, borderless, sovereign, uh, like, money system um, or a, a method of payment. And to me, it felt like that couldn't quite be achieved without privacy. Um, and so it felt like a really uh, huge opportunity in the space. It was definitely mission aligned with what I w wanted to do. Um, I understood very early on that zero-knowledge proofs were going to be the answer to this problem, and I was very curious about that technology. Um, and very few people were working on it. So it was just like, a, you know, all the things kind of aligned with me wanting to work in privacy. Yeah, I definitely think there is sort of a, like, like the energy of what you're describing is really great. Uh, you know, I do, I actually was, uh, you know, I'm old enough to be part of that first internet <laughs> wave, you know, in, in kind of the early 1990s. And, you know, I definitely can tell you that, you know, the, this kind of like Web3 phenomenon definitely has similar energy, right? It definitely has this kind of frontier energy, you know, and I think yeah. that what was happening at that time, you know, really kind of isn't sort of the birth of the internet so much as the consumerization, the ubiquitization, right? And so it really had the quality of kind of bringing mass adoption, right? So that, that kind of excitement, I think, is, is definitely there. You know, we've been through quite a lot since 2017, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, it's... It's an understatement. Yeah, event. absolutely. So I think, you know, we've been through... It's, a, it's been an amazing kind of journey in terms of the development of this, uh, you know, base layer and subsequent layers. Uh, so I guess, you know, when I think back to sort of people working on... ZK proofs, like, you know, I would say that, you know, your generation of kind of ZK and privacy pioneers include, you know, folks like Zuko Wilcox, uh, you know, working on kind of funky applications around Zcash, Halo, and like other sort of like ZK tech, like, you know, what's your perspective on kind of the evolution of zero knowledge technology? Because it seems like, you know, it's, it's sort of starting to become very popular, especially around things like scalability. So mm -hmm. I, I'm just curious how you see 
the uh, evolution of, of the ZK uh, field, as it were. Yeah. So zeolash proofs were created or first invented in the mid-'80s um, by Shafi Goldwasser, Sylvia McCauley, and a few others. And back then, it was a very theoretical thing. It was very an, an interactive protocol. Um, and so that field of study was um, somewhat kind of under the radar for quite a, quite a long time. Um, and the first like, paper that really revolutionized the use of zero launch proofs was uh, a paper in, I believe, 2013 that was called Pinocchio. And it was a combined research effort from Microsoft Research and IBM Research. And uh, it was the very first time where we had um, like a pragmatic or kind of usable SNARKs. And SNARK is a type of zero-knowledge proof. It stands for succinct non-interactive arguments of knowledge. And so Zcash that you, that you mentioned was pioneer of that technology. They were the very first uh, ones to actually have a, uh, a production product using SNARKs. And so they actually did use the Pinocchio protocol in their very first privacy mechanism called Sprout, which is wow. like, you know, very, very old yeah. and has now been outdated. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, zero-launch proofs have definitely started to really accelerate in their development ever since then with a huge explosion in 2019. Um, and so kind of the progression from Pinocchio was another paper, uh, um, another paper by Jans Groth in 2016, uh, and it described a protocol called Groth 16, which is actually something that Ironfish still Great. uses. Um, right. And uh, Groth 16 is... Um, still a very powerful proof system. Um, it is uh, very, very good on the metrics that we care about when we create zero launch proofs. Um, so there's typically three kind of benchmarks that we look for, which is proof generation. So how long does it take to generate a proof? Uh, proof size, meaning how large the proof actually is. It's very important if you're trying to store it on chain. Um, and proof verification time. So how fast can a, can a validator verify the proof? And so GRAS 16 is, is still... Uh, very much the leading proof system um, for certain applications um, in for those metrics, and that's why we still use it. But in 2019, there was an explosion of kind of new proof systems. One of the drawbacks of Gross 16, or or kind of Snarks as we knew it at that moment in time, is that they required something called a trusted setup. So a trusted setup basically means that uh, when you launch the system, the setup phase for that system requires the um, creation of a private key that then creates this validation key. And the private key needs to be thrown away because if that private key is ever used, um, then you could potentially have backdoor. proofs that, yeah, effectively, effectively a backdoor. And so uh, people are pretty nervous about this system. Now, in practice, though, I think that worry is not really, uh, not, not really a practical worry because we have something called multi-party computation uh, to create this private key and to create this verification key, meaning that you might have uh, thousands and thousands of people contrib contribute their randomness uh, to create this verification key as part of the trusted setup, such that if only one person is honest and throws away their private key, then the entire system is honest. Um, so for Ironfish, when we ran our uh, trusted setup ceremony, I think we had like over 8,000 contributors or contributions uh, to kind of contribute to the randomness. So I think in practice that worry goes away. But there was still like a really kind of fascinating, um, you know, almost like an academic uh, research challenge of how do you create zero-knowledge proofs without the trusted setup. Um, uh, and so then we had systems. Sorry. I just, uh, to me, like, you know, obviously these kind of have the shades of like the 
ethereum kzg kind of summoning ritual you know and i i think to me the thing that is concerning though is that indeed you have this kind of beautiful multi-party computation you have this beautiful randomness you have this beautiful so you have many many beautiful components right but the thing that i think makes people rightly nervous is that there's no sort of foundational proof of deletion Right, so there's no real mathematical thing because I, here's here's my point. My point is is you can collect all the randomness, and then you can mm -hmm. basically do some kind of funky man in the middle attack where somebody inserts, you know. So you can be like the output of this system is this key that is sort of made maybe kind of the product of a sort of a compromised system no so the way it works is you're you create a private key on your local machine like on your laptop yeah. for instance and the output is kind of like the, the the public output of that operation from your laptop um and at the end you can actually verify that your randomness was indeed used as part of the overall randomness that's then used in the system if that makes sense so you can always verify whether or not your random randomness contribution was was included and you never send the private key that your computer made um, as part of that ceremony. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's wonderful if you trust sort of yourself, right? But what I mean to say is is that if you wrote down the key that was generated on your laptop, then initiated mm -hmm. the ceremony, then that paper wallet is the fundamental compromise of the entire system. Yeah, so every single person in the ceremony would have to do that. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, because of MPC. Yeah, so if only one person throws away that private part, then the entire system is honest. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that feels, that feels good. Uh, I definitely feel like these are really kind of the big issues with respect to kind of like ensuring that people can feel comfortable and they can kind of sleep at night. Uh, you know, one of the things I conjectured is that there are actually MPC systems that are sort of in the wild that are responsible for key management. And obviously, you know, a compromised initial ritual can, can cause uh, consternation uh, later, right? And in a sense, like, you know, the ideal attack would be one that would allow the network to just accrete value over potentially a very long period of time before uh, using the key. Yeah, um, but so sometimes you need to trust a setup for something like a Gros 16, like Xenolog Proof, um, but you might also uh, use it for something called a universal setup. So there's a, the, the other drawback of having a trusted setup, especially for a rigid proof system, like uh, something based on R1CS, which is Gros 16, that's what it's based on, um, is, is that when you uh, create updates to your program, you would have to recreate the entire trusted setup. Um, and so the other kind of like revolutionary outcome of the 2019 like, you know, Xenolog Proof boom is this concept of universal setups. So you do the setup still, but the setup can, um, can, uh, can be applied to multiple types of circuits, meaning multiple types of programs. Um, yeah, so it is actually very cool because like a, a lot of the ZKVM work that's happening right now is based on this idea that you might write a smart contract that might compile to a circuit, but you don't have to do a trusted setup per per smart contract that you're verifying. So it's a, again, it makes it a lot more dynamic and more flexible. Uh, it makes it be way more usable in a dynamic environment like a ZKVM. 
Um, but there's also been a ton of research in how do we have proof systems that don't require uh, trusted setup at all. Um, and so one of the older proof systems that managed to do that is called Starks. Um, and if you've heard of a company called Starkware, uh, it is a company that resulted in some of the um, researchers that worked on Starks uh, to kind of start that initiative. Um, so that, that's definitely obviously really cool. And then Halo 2 from Zcash can also be made in a way that does not require trusted setup as well. So it's just there's been an explosion of like different proof systems, and and that's just like like scratching the surface. There's like a lot of uh, new newer work coming out from Microsoft Research that is pushing the envelope even still. <laughs> like there was a, a new paper that dropped I think like literally a few weeks ago um, that made more impro improvements uh, on a different system called Nova. So I can I can keep going, but like yeah, in 2019 um, onwards, there's just a huge explosion, different types of journalist proofs that have different constraints on them. I know it's super helpful actually, because you know my audience is definitely a bit of a Web3 generalist audience. So in a sense of understanding a little bit more about the kind of family of algorithms, you know, I think it's pretty helpful, right? I think one of the un things to unpack as well is sort of the uh, differentiation between sort of the interactive and non-interactive, so the Stark Snark boundary, if I'm understanding it correctly. Mm -hmm. So I think it'd be super helpful yeah. if you could kind of uh, sort of unpack what the application level difference would be in the sense that these, you know, these things are, uh, you know, they, they have different fundamental properties. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Sorry, was there, was there a question there? Yeah, <laughs> if you could sure. help unpack the difference, that would be super useful. Oh, the difference between different types of knowledge proofs? Or, no, the difference between interactive or different and non-interactive. Oh, um, so almost no one uses interactive knowledge proofs anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all the proofs that we have are non-interactive. The, the thing about interactive is it makes it very impractical. It kind of basically means that the verifier and the prover both have to be online, um, and the verifier has to have an active challenger to it, um, which makes it pretty impractical in blockchains because you want kind of like the proof to be verified without there being like a, I don't know, like a, like a verifier that, that decides on a different challenge every single time, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, all the proof systems that we've heard so far, uh, so Gros 16, you know, Plonk, Halo 2, Starks, um, they're, they're all non-reactive protocols. That's great. That's super helpful, and it's great context. So uh, we'd love to kind of understand a bit more about sort of um, what, what, you know, what's the kind of project status? So, you know, where are you in this journey? Yeah, so Ironfish is fully manned at launch. You can use it today. Um, and with the way we thought about launch is very iterative. Like, this is step zero. Like, what are we trying to build here? We're trying to build a privacy platform for all of crypto. How do we get there? Well, first, we need this found, like, foundational layer that can even accept, you know, custom assets from other chains and so on. So right now, Ironfish is its own layer one proof-of-work blockchain uh, with the ability to create custom assets, um, and it's fully launched. You can join it today. You can see the stats page, you can see how many nodes there are, and so on. You can mine it, contribute to it. Um, we have Block Explorer, and so on. And so that we kind of view as a step zero, effectively, of like how do we get this thing out the door so that then we have a platform uh, to build on top of in terms of how do we connect Ironfish to other chains, um, and how do we bring those, the assets from other chains onto Ironfish. Um, so it's been live for roughly a month, uh, and uh, uh, we're kind of working through making sure that the network itself is stable. Uh, we're definitely listening to feedback from our users. So these are, you know, miners, exchangers, users, and so on. 
and really getting the feedback for how to make sure that Ironfish is um, easy to use, that we're hearing some of their issues and fixing them. And so the short-term kind of plan is very much uh, reactionary to the direct feedback that we're getting from our community. And then the secondary plan is to um, is to focus on the bridging aspect that I mentioned and to really start bringing over assets um, and really making sure that the user experience there is, is solid um, and then kind of inching forward uh, to more and more assets and more and more chains. Tell me about kind of the mining. Is this GPU mining or how do you see, you know, obvious proof of work, but I'm trying to understand better sort of What's the sort of optimized way to compute what you need? Yeah, so our hashing algorithm is something called Blake3, um, and there is a GPU implementation for Blake3. So currently, um, all our mining pools are GPU-based, yes. Yeah, that seems pretty useful, right? Because I think one of the things that's happened in the world of mining is that, you know, as Ethereum, you know, produced a shift into proof-of-stake, right, there's actually just tons of GPUs around, right? So I, I would imagine that there's plenty of takers on, you know, securing your network. Yeah, so we have certainly seen that. We have um, we have had GPU miners uh, come to Ironfish even during its test net from Ethereum, so that was definitely very cool to see. Um, and, you know, our goal for Ironfish is to be as decentralized as possible, and that's part of the reason why we even chose Proof of Work, even though we're kind of a a much newer chain, and so much, you know, newer chains right now are choosing proof of stake or variations of proof of stake. Um, and we kind of went back to the basics of proof of work. And part of the reason is because our our goal is to lessen the friction for people being a part of the Ironfish network. And proof of work to me is kind of the easiest way to join a network. Like you just need a laptop. <laughs> you can just need a computer. Um, you know, maybe with a GPU with with a GPU card, and um, you can certainly host a full node with just in your laptop today. Uh, it's part of the reason why my fans might be acting up a little bit <laughs> is because I'm actually running an Ironfish full, full node Amazing. right now. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we tried to lessen the friction, um, you know, such that install Ironfish as a one-line command tool. So if you already have node, like the latest version of node running on your computer, you just do npm install dash g Ironfish and you have the full Ironfish SDK. Um, you can just start your node by typing in Ironfish start and you're you're good to go. Um, but similarly to mining, you know, uh, proof of work is the easiest way to start contributing to the networks like hash power, um, and uh, that's definitely a part of the reason why we chose it. Uh, and we have a lot of like GPU home miners, so effectively people who might be hobbyists um, who you know have GPUs laying around who are now contributing to to Ironfish, which is really cool to see. Yeah, I think that the idea of a GPU optimized or maybe optimized is the wrong word but like you know really that you're getting a lot out of gpu mining is actually incredibly democratizing and in a sense like it really actually fits to kind of dare i say the original vision of satoshi on proof of work right because <laughs> one of the things that he conjectured in some of his writings on uh, bitcoin forum is really this idea that he conjectured that mining would likely move towards the uh, poles, right, simply because the miners would heat the apartments of people, right? So, so, so he really envisioned kind of mining as being a people activity, you know, and not the way that it kind of turned out in Bitcoin, which is sort of like institutional, right, as a function of ASICs, right? So in a sense, like, it's very unlikely yeah. that an individual is going to run out and buy an ant miner. And I mean, they used to, but like, I think now, most of the Bitcoin mining is not, it's just not the way it used to be. So, you know, I, I do think it's kind of neat, right? And it contributes 
quite a lot to sort of decentralization. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. <laughs> yeah, that's really neat. How, how big is your network now? Like, what, is, what does your network look like? Um, yeah, so we have opt-in telemetry, so people can provide stats for us. Um, so roughly between 500 to 1,000 nodes have opted in to give us their telemetry, which is really cool. Um, and so it's, it's kind of hard to know actually how big your network is uh, without you know either us building crawlers or people giving us uh, telemetry. So it's approximately 1,000 nodes, but we have a lot more uh, professional miners who have literally thousands and thousands of mining machines as part of that. It feels like without sort of deliberately or even non-deliberately doxing miners like you might is there some kind of a nonce construct or is there because to me like it feels like there might be a way to conjecture hash power and then back calculate sort of like dark matter nodes like hidden nodes like i don't know you know if this anything i'm saying makes sense <laughs> Um, like, I guess you're talking about like how easy it is to figure out how many miners there are in the system. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you can kind of guesstimate, right? You can kind of guesstimate of like, this is the most popular hardware. This is the, you know, usual Average. output of that hardware. And this is the, you know, yeah. And this is like the, the hash power. And so you kind of, you know, backtrace yeah. there, but a lot of mining pools actually self-report that information too, which is super helpful. Um, and I think there's a website called mining stream pool stats, uh, or something similar to that. Um, that most mining pools contribute to, so you can actually see pretty clear stats of how that network is operating. Yeah, that's really neat. I mean, obviously my intention isn't to kind of like dox your miners, because obviously the whole network <laughs> is predicated on privacy, but like really my idea is kind of to scratch my head about like, I wonder how big it really is and, you know, being able to try to figure it out, right? Because obviously like the decentralization contributes to the security and also the size, right? This is the the you know, hash power magnitude is kind totally. of also, you know, helping very much to sort of secure the networks. So that that kind of multiplier of the total hash against the sort of scale of decentralization gives you kind of this feeling of like safety. So, so I, I, that's it's great to hear. I mean, it definitely sounds like a pretty exciting. I think the ease of use of your mining node, the ease of loading, and you know, I think that's that's also very exciting. Um, yeah, so I guess one of the things I'm really curious about are kind of like your thoughts about kind of applications. Like, I know applications is maybe a funny thing to think about, but, you know, because you really have this sort of base layer cross-chain privacy. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, where you see the users congregating. You know, is it more payment? Is it more exchange? Like, what are your feelings about, you know, the usage? Yeah, so I think at our infrastructure, we've always been focusing on iterative progress. So how do we solve one problem first? How do we make sure we listen to users, really take their feedback, make it into a good product, and then kind of inch forward? Um, so the very first focus on, on for us is how do we build this privacy platform? Because just like having a, a chain agnostic privacy platform, like that is actually a pretty huge feat. Um, and I know, like, I think in crypto we get carried away that a product needs to sound extremely confusing, like, very convoluted and, like, very, like, advanced in order for it to be, quote-unquote, cool. Um, and really, like, simple products are really hard to build. Uh, simple products that users can actually intuitively understand and, like, really interact with. Um, there is so much effort there. So I think, like, just building a privacy platform for crypto on its own, like, that is a hugely ambitious goal. Like, there's so many assets that have never 
uh, even seen a privacy product built for them. So for instance, we've never seen a private Bitcoin. Uh, there have been so several attempts at a private stablecoin, and that hasn't really panned out either. Um, you know, there's multiple protocols that are trying to make private ETH, and you know, that's not really a thing right now either, right? So like just, just making a privacy platform for, for crypto, um, that is a huge goal. Uh, and so we really want to make sure that we get that right um, and really nail the user experience there. Like our goal is to be like the plumbing for crypto, which is like an analogy I use because I want people to understand that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sexy because it's unsexy, if that makes sense. Like, you and I are using HTTPS right now, right? And we don't have to think about it. We just use yep. it. Like, you know, it's like the plumbing of the internet. Like, most most websites currently are using it to secure the communication. Um, and so for Ironfish, like, it's a, if we build our jobs, or if we do our jobs well, then users should be able to use Ironfish as the privacy platform for, you know, transferring, swapping, storing assets completely privately, without necessarily even understanding what's going on. Um, and so doing that through like really good UI, really good supporting tools, um, you know, is definitely very, very important for us. And so like every, every time we build a product, um, you know, we make sure that it is top-notch quality before we release it. And sometimes we even delay products um, to make sure that it is up to par before, before re releasing them. Um, so, like, you know, in terms of your question of like, are we going to have programmability is kind of what I think you were asking. Like, uh, can we have, do we have smart contracts? Yes. Um, that's definitely something that we look forward to. Uh, we were thinking about that, um, you know, uh, like already internally as part of our uh, internal roadmap. Um, and, you know, we're kind of thinking of um, how do we, how do we make sure that users fully understand where do they have all like full privacy and where do they have, programmability, but maybe at the cost of privacy. And so the way we're thinking about it is the base chain, like so the layer one, Ironfish, is always fully, fully private, but at the cost of not being flexible, at the cost of not having full programmability. And the way we're thinking of introducing programmability is through a layer two experience. So how does Ironfish support a layer two such that the base layer is fully private, that's where you store your Got assets, it. and if you want programmability, you actually move on over to the layer two, um, and that way you have some anonymity, right? Because you always kind of cash out to the private layer one, but you get a much richer programmable uh, experience on layer two. So we're kind of looking at different systems. This is, uh, you know, um, admittedly uh, a bit further out because we really want to focus on making Ironfish the, the go-to privacy solution for most chains. Um, but yeah, we're certainly looking at like, how do we expand Ironfish? How do we have DEXs, right? Uh, I think people have been trying to build a private DEX for quite for some sure. time. Um, and, uh, and our approach to that is you, you, should, you, you can build uh, a DEX on the layer two, um, and that by itself will not be uh, private, which I think there is actually some benefit there because um, having a public order book is also beneficial. Um, and then always having the ability to cash out on the fully private layer one. So that's kind of how we're attempting to, to uh, get a, you know, approach this problem. Um, there are different, there's so many different privacy solutions or privacy products and companies coming out for right sure. now. And I'm actually extremely grateful for, for all the privacy products that are, uh, that are tackling the space because we're all kind of approaching this problem from different angles and different kind of like creativity and innovation. Um, and so this is just purely our approach, but there are certainly other projects that are trying to do this in a different way. So uh, one of the things I'm curious about is sort of this, you know, obviously there's a very large kind of schism within the blockchain world around the 
model, ledger model, whether they're sort of an account basis or UTXO basis. I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, what's your worldview around this topic? Uh, sorry, could you repeat the question? Uh, sort of a UTXO uh, question, right? Which is what's what's the kind of base layer abstraction for ledger and like how do you reason about like, uh, you know, uh, sort of the, how do, how do you record you know, value events. Um, yeah. So, are you asking primarily of like ETH services, the 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 key account, yeah. the account model for Ethereum? Yeah. Um, yeah so, ETH model, like, um, so ETH services account model, are just like fundamentally different, like mental models for how we keep state. Yep. Um, and a ETH model is actually probably the only way you could achieve privacy, in my opinion. I think it's like almost impossible to achieve privacy in the account yeah. model, um, but it comes at a cost. And so like, the, it, and again, it's actually a very different uh, mental model altogether. So the U2XO is you can kind of think of like, um, you know, you have a $20 bill, right? And so for Bitcoin, the way that works is I have this $20 bill. The $20 bill actually has my name. That's my ownership. That's how Bitcoin, like the Bitcoin network knows that this $20 bill is mine. And if I wanted to give you $5 out of my $20, what I do is I spend my $20, I rip it up, now you have $5, and I have a brand new bill of $15, right? And that's the spend transaction output. Yep. Like, that's what that stands for, ETXO. Yep. Uh, but as you can imagine, because the data model is a kind of focused on uh, records or, like, bills or notes or whatever you want to call them, um, it's really hard to attach a layer of programmability on top of that. Now, for Ethereum, it actually works um, a, a lot differently. You can, kind of think, you can kind of think of that as a key value store almost. So the key being um, either a user uh, address or even a smart contract address, and the value being whatever is associated with that. Um, so for Ethereum, you know, for a user address, you have the, the value there is how much ETH you have in your wallet. And if it's a smart contract address, then the state is the state of that smart contract. So actually, if you have like $20 of DAI, that lives under the smart contract you know, address value, yep. not your value, which is why you need to index a different ERC-20 smart contract if you wanted to see a balance of an ERC-20 for your wallet even. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, they're just like totally different fundamental like mental models. And um, and the reason why it's almost impossible to achieve privacy in account-based models because if you need to modify state, you know, you will have to modify the state associated with that smart with that address, right? Whether it be a smart contract address or a user address. And so, even if everything's fully encrypted, you will definitely leak like what is it that you're changing? Versus for notes, um, you know, uh, I can I can spend notes without even revealing to you what note I'm spending. Uh, and so that's why the ETXO model is, is uh, much more amendable to privacy. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the content I was, the answer kind of categorically that I was looking for, right? Because clearly, like, the thing that's really funny about account model is that every time you have to update the thing, you have to touch it, right? So every time you touch it, yeah, exactly. someone is like, oh, it's <laughs> the same entity that keeps coming yeah. back to the same thing. It's like, oh, well, let's just follow this co cookie trail. Like, let's let's figure out, like, who keeps coming 
coming back to the same place over and over, right? It's like, uh, you know, we got your yeah. IP or whatever it is, right? Like you, we can, you know, eventually there's some kind of like aha moment where you're like, gotcha, right? Yeah. So that, that's interesting. So I, I do want to mention something. Um, and, I, and I heard you say, say this twice, so I, I kind of like, I feel obliged to, to note yeah. on it, is there's some, there's a difference between network layer, like network layer privacy and on-chain privacy. Um, and so those are two huge challenges, yes. right? So like one is kind of what you mentioned about like, can I track IP, right? Which is kind of like, um, if I have a transaction, can I figure out which full node first broadcasted that transaction and make some assumptions about where the actual user is physically located based on the IP of that node that first broadcast that, that, that transaction. So network layer of privacy is actually really, really hard. And Bitcoin has attempted at this, you know, uh, there's something called the Dandelion um, protocol that's attempted on this. I think the NIM network is kind of all about that. Um, Grin has tried some variations of that as well. But it's actually a largely unsolved problem because um, if you're trying to obfuscate network traffic, then by definition, your network layer is going to be slower yes. <laughs> because you're trying to like obfuscate certain sure. things. And then it really hits the user experience. And then, and then oftentimes they're actually not as good as, as they claim to be or they, they aim to be. Uh, and so most people don't quite do network layer privacy. Um, that's why I don't think um, I, most, most uh, you know, blockchain projects don't even attempt to do that. Um, and then on-chain privacy is obviously what we, what we are focusing on is a, like basically looking at chain data can you infer who sent what what you know and when um and uh and yeah so that's exactly the the thing that our infra is trying to is trying but to i think i think if someone is really really kind of like concerned for their physical safety or you know some kind of use case like that like they may be using you know something like tails and then onion router like they may be using kind of much much yeah. more kind of network level totally. and obviously yeah. paying performance penalties and obviously like you know chunking along mm -hmm. but like you know there they, it feels like there are presently sufficiently viable kind of solutions although there might be kind of like state actor level like ways to figure things out you know but it's unclear right but i would say that like you know there's definitely kind of good enough network security types of things that people are playing with oh totally yeah you can certainly use you know vpn tor etc uh and a full node if you really wanted to be extremely careful about your privacy yeah i mean you know there's definitely like cases where people are needing things so you know it's uh it makes sense um yeah uh, so i guess one of the things i'm curious about is sort of your future vision, you know, I think uh, maybe from a project perspective, like, you know, roadmap items that you're excited about, obviously, you've talked about kind of like getting the base layer, we did talk about kind of programmability on L2, you know, this kind of stuff. But like, you know, I guess what's next for you? What are you excited about? And then maybe more far future things, right? Maybe more kind of like yeah. the, the grand vision. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, you know, the short-term kind of uh, things that we want to focus on is making sure that our existing users are happy. So, for instance, we launched Mainnet, and we, uh, despite us running, like, almost a, actually over a year of testnet, uh, now we have new, us new users using Ironfish Mainnet, so we're getting even more feedback. Um, so we're getting professional miners who, like, really care about network latency, and so we're talking to them and really making sure that 
we're addressing their needs and addressing their concerns about like let's say the speed of like block propagation or the speed of block generation or or anything like that and these are like non-trivial things like i know they sound you know maybe a little bit boring but uh um but uh block generation is actually like a really hard problem for for us in particular because um if when you create something called a block template that you then give to uh to miners to actually mine on you need to verify all the transactions that might go into that block well, every single transaction has zero knowledge proof verification attached to it. And wow. so how do you make sure that that is actually really fast? Other blockchains don't necessarily have to care about that as much. Um, and then same thing for exchanges. Exchanges are like, you know, whoa, like it takes uh, a lot longer for us to generate this transaction. It's like, well, yes, because there's zero knowledge proofs attached to every single transaction. And so if you make a transaction that goes out to more people, that'll be computationally more expensive for you to create that. And so right now we're like, you know, laser focused on making sure that Ironfish runs as smoothly as, you know, as possible and makes all of the existing stakeholders um, happy about using Ironfish. So how do we make transaction generation faster or block generation faster or networking layer faster and so on. So or, um, uh, when we launched, we actually didn't launch with a wallet and our community reacted negatively to that. So now we are working on a, on a wallet. Um, actually, we've, we've had a wallet. It's more like we're making sure that it's finalized so that by the time we, we uh, release it, um, it has all the features that we want and it works the way we, the way we want it up to our quality bar. So these are like the short-term projects that we're working on to like uh, immediately address the concerns of the community. Um, and if you're ever interested about like what the you know, Ironfish team is working on right now or what the Ironfish community is working on right now, uh, our Discord is probably the best place to kind of get, you know, full updates, um, which is just discord.ironfish.network if you ever wanted to join. Um, so those are like the short-term goals. The longer-term goals, so by end of year, which I know we only have roughly six months of, um, our goal is to have at least one bridge to either Bitcoin or Ethereum. So that is our main goal. Like our, our proposition for what Ironfish is, is a privacy platform. Um, and so for that, like, we really want to either support Bitcoin or Ethereum or both, <laughs> but, I, but I definitely at least one by end of year. So that, that is our goal for end of year. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of like longer vision, it is kind of a lot of the things that I already mentioned, which is how do we expand to different assets? How do we, how do we expand to different use cases? So when we talk to people about what they want to see out of a privacy platform for crypto, there are different use cases that came up that were super interesting. So you know, one person said, I really want a private DAO. Like, I want to be part of a DAO, but I don't want anyone to know that I'm part of this DAO because, you know, that, uh, you know, that reveals something about myself or about my choices or about my preferences. Um, and so uh, being like, uh, like a private membership of a DAO is definitely a really interesting use case that Ironfish can actually support today. Um, the other use case that people are very excited about is private NFTs, especially uh, NFTs that originated on, let's say, Ethereum. Um, a lot of times people might buy NFTs uh, for you know, investment pur uh, purposes. They don't necessarily want to use it as a profile picture. They just want to hide it and want to make sure that it doesn't get fished or stolen. Um, and so um, you know, we've, we have heard feedback of uh, people wanting to store their NFTs on a privacy layer because it's much harder to steal something when the attacker doesn't even know you have it. <laughs> There's no ability for, for them to, to look in, you know, at a, on a block explorer and to see all the NFTs that you have. Um, so that's definitely another one. Um, private stable coins, um, you know, people have definitely expressed interest there. Again, there are several attempts at private stable coins that we still don't have a go-to private stablecoin solution. Um, and so kind of unlocking that is also very, very exciting. So kind of like, again, like expanding the use cases for how people can use Ironfish in their daily needs. Uh, that's more of a, like a six to 12 month kind of um, 
uh, kind of goal. Um, but yeah, the, the five-year vision for sure is how do we expand Arden Fish such that it can uh, support um, you know, all assets or all crypto assets and the majority of crypto transactions use Arden Fish as the privacy go-to layer, which is, I know is a super hefty goal and will require a lot more building. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the ultimate goal is to be this plumbing for crypto. Yeah, I think it's definitely, uh, you know, it's quite exciting. Uh, I'm interested to try to understand also about sort of the token, right? Because it, it seems that there is an iron token. And uh, I just want to understand sort of like, what's the use case and how does it work? Yeah, so uh, in order for you to send a transaction on Ironfish, you need to pay fees, and the fees are in iron. Um, the Ironfish token is part of block rewards, so that's how the emission curve gets created. Um, and so miners are getting paid to support the Ironfish network through the Ironfish token. Um, and if you wanted to, let's say, have private Bitcoin type of Ironfish, you would need to have iron in order to pay for the transaction fees to interact with Bitcoin type of Ironfish. So very similarly how, like for instance, Ethereum played a role in supporting the ERC-20 boom, right? Um, you know, uh, Ethereum is still being used to pay uh, transaction fees on top of Ethereum. Um, that is actually the primary use case for Ethereum. Um, then that's similarly to how Ironfish is, is, is being used in the Ironfish network. Makes sense. Or, yeah. Makes sense. So essentially then you have a mechanism <laughs> through which uh, additional coins can be represented in the network, right? So a wrapped Bitcoin would be represented. So it's effectively something like an ERC-20 is to Ethereum, right? So, uh, and, then, and then obviously transacting that would not be, uh, the, the gas wouldn't be paid in that token, it would be paid in the base layer token, much like the Ethereum Correct, network. Yeah. Okay, that's, uh, that's very cool and uh, really interesting. Um, I guess maybe far future thoughts as a sort of closing note, like how do you see kind of the grand the grand future of uh, all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much how we started Ironfish. Um, you know, I think, like, this vision for crypto is to be this unbiased, borderless, decentralized money. Um, and it's, in my opinion, impossible to build that without privacy. If I know something about you, I can censor you. Like, if I know that you are part of a DAO or if you are, uh, maybe you donated to Ukraine and I don't like that, then it can certainly... Uh, um, you know, do something based on that knowledge. And so, in my opinion, it's impossible to have this full vision of crypto without privacy. Um, and on top of that, when we talk to non-crypto financial institutions, for them, privacy is not just a human right. For them, it's a necessity. Like, they cannot reveal their order books, or they can't reveal their trades, or they can't reveal their user data information. Um, and so when we, like, you know, when we look at uh, EY, which is one of the biggest kind of accounting uh, consulting firms, they're actually working on um, a privacy uh, a privacy like protocol for the Polygon network. Um, when we uh, you know uh, when we talk to Visa, they have an entire entire crypto team that and they're very uh, you know very much worried about privacy or very much interested in, in privacy. Uh, and even JP Morgan, like I you know they they used to have an internal crypto team within the company. Um, and they published a paper called Zether that was, again, uh, a privacy protocol for Ethereum. Um, so, uh, so the concept of privacy on the blockchain is not only beneficial to crypto users, but it's actually also beneficial for non-crypto users and the non-crypto kind of financial institutions trying to get into crypto. 
Um, so our whole thesis is that not only is it a huge opportunity, but it'll actually unlock a lot more parties and a lot more people participating in crypto. So that's my, my closing thoughts of uh, you know privacy, uh, or the future is crypto, and crypto cannot have a future without privacy. Yeah, I very much appreciate that. And I really, I think the thing I really appreciate about uh, you joining my show is that you know, I think you have a really great explanatory power, like the combination of the sort of depth of your knowledge and the kind of um, unobfuscated nature of your, you know, uh, sort of education. Like, I think it's, it's very uh, refreshing. You know, I think there's definitely a lot of people whose goal it is to sort of maybe sound mystifyingly, bafflingly smart, you know, and it seems like you're more <laughs> interested in communicating clearly about what you're doing. So yeah. I really appreciate that a lot. That's, well, thank you so much for saying that. It's actually how I got into crypto. I know this is like the closing, but if I may, um, you know, when I started going to those hackathons, the, my next step is uh, I started doing talks and I would live code on stage a full ERC721 smart contract with tests in a front end to show people that if I can do it on stage, right, then so can you. Um, and the way I like learn about zero launch proofs is I sign myself up for a talk at a DEF CON, the Ethereum conference, and I learn what zero knowledge proofs were before the conference. Um, and a variation of that talk is, uh, is published uh, on YouTube somewhere, and I think people have still like thanked me for it, which is like super cool because like my whole thesis is like it's not necessarily moon math. Like we can understand it. And it's just a you know it's a matter of like digging in and really understanding it. Um, and that's been like our thesis for Ironfish as well. Like we are building this for the people, and if the people cannot understand it, <laughs> then uh, then we can't. Then we're not really building it for them. Um, so how do we kind of make sure that our users are fully aware with um, how to use Ironfish? What is it for? Making sure that our messaging is clear, and making sure that even like running a node from your command line uh, is pretty straightforward. So thank you for for acknowledging well, that. Well, I think one of the long running <laughs> themes that I've been purveying, you know, obviously this is not in any way investment advice, right? But like, I definitely suggest broadly as a rubric that people not invest in things that they don't understand. And I think that the history of crypto has been one where lots of kind of like very kind of mystical sounding kind of rantings are coming out and people are sort of throwing money at those, right? So like, to me, I think it's very refreshing to have kind of intellectual honesty, but also to have a combination of kind of like very strong subject depth combined with sort of a very clear communication style. So just just hats off to you and, uh, you know, hope that makes hope that makes audience members kind of more comfortable with your project. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Okay, thanks. Bye.